Hi, Sarah Hefla. Hi, Nancy Rommelman. Do you know? Do you know something? Do you want to hear something? Yes, please. I missed you. Well, because well, I've been here burning the candle on both ends. Yeah, I just haven't. I don't know. I was on deadline for a piece, and I was sort of uh, in another world. But it just seems like a lot of days have passed since I've talked to you. Seems mm-hmm. like a hundred years since I saw your face. It's it. We have been both. Um, um, good morning, everybody. I'm in San Francisco. Sarah's in Dallas, and we've both been pretty busy. And I'm still kind of in the soup here, so we have not had a chance to record. It's probably been a day or longer more than we usually do. But we're here for you because we are those kinds of soldiers, and also because um, it's been a very in the journalism world. It's been a very um, it's been a very strange week, and uh, I know that. I know that, you know, obviously it's like insider baseball. People are like, why should I care about any of this stuff? I have yeah. actually really, really strong feelings about why people should care about this stuff. Yeah. And so we're, we're going to talk about that a little. Um, I don't know if you want to jump right into that or if you want to talk about what you sent me this morning. Well, no, I want to talk about the journalism thing first, and I want to I want to validate both your points. Um, one is that I think this is insider baseball that most people won't know about and might not care about, and the other part that there's a reason that they should. You and I talk a lot about some of the figures in the Twitterati and media today that are a little bit of like. They're well known amongst a tiny fraction of people. And in yes, and in the past I've argued that we shouldn't be talking about this because it's too niche. And so when you first suggested talking about this, I I did actually have a little bit of a reaction against it. And then as I thought more about it and read more about it, I thought, no, this is the time. And we're going to be talking today about a couple of female journalists that have become flashpoints. And one of the things that I think is tricky here is that, you know, by talking about these women by name, in some ways you re you keep this whole toxic stew going because part of what's happening is they're becoming targets and then they're getting more radicalized. And but here's why I think it's worth talking about these women, which is that I think women, as in you and me, have a unique ability and actually burden uh, to talk about other women who have excesses that we find dangerous. This is a place that you and I can uniquely contribute to this conversation. I think it's very difficult at times for men to call out women doing this, as was attempted in these stories we're going to talk about. Um, and I think this is something where you and I, um, share a feeling, a a sort of frustration, queasiness, but also a sense of responsibility that when other women have kind of gone off the tracks, it's important for us to call that. I do. And it's, it's, um, I actually, I told you right before we started taping that I woke up, um, I woke up with a slightly, well, with a different perspective on it than than I've had. Um, yesterday was a very, very, the past couple of days on Twitter and in the kind of news world, our little world has been very busy because these the women we're going to talk about, one is called, one is named Taylor Lorenz. 
and the other is Felicia Sonmez. They're both at um, the Washington Post. Lorenz is something of a bit of a, I would put star in scare quotes reporter. She reports on tech. She's been... She's a high profile tech reporter. Yeah. She's, for the past couple of years, she's, um, she's made some waves in that uh, her reporting has not been considered. People that she's reported on have been like, wait a second, I didn't either, either I didn't say that or she didn't contact me or it was, she kind of skewed it in a way or she, people felt that she doxed people and she's kind of gotten a, um, a reputation for doing this. And yet she, I guess, you know, the Washington Post obviously feels that she gets the goods and they hired her really not too long ago. I think it's, she was at the Times. She's only been there, what, like yes. six Eight months, something like that? She came from the New York Times, which is where she came to my attention as the tech reporter there. And um, she's also not long ago, I guess it was about five months ago, um, they, she did an interview for, I believe it was an NBC affiliate, or where she went on camera and said, look, you know, you don't understand how difficult it is for women journalists out here. We are we are badgered. We are landed upon. We are, t- they say terrible things to us. And she cried on camera and said, I have PTSD. I've been suicidal. And she had, I guess, another another uh, female journalist with her or a trans journalist with her that sort of reified this. And it was, the, the, it was you know, the, the person that was interviewing her was incredibly sympathetic, almost to the point where people watching it is like, what is this softball interview? It was more like sure. sort of promo. Also, and I, I hate to be like the 1,000th person to say this, but it was a bit, the, 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 it was, it was a bit melodramatic, the whole thing. And she didn't really look like she was crying, but she was, and then she got piled on for that. It just seems to be this cycle where she's, she's doing things journalistically kind of questionable. And then she gets angry and attacks the people for attacking her. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And central to that story you just told was that after that clip aired, she accused the 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 channel, I think it was MSNBC, but I can't remember, of creating, making her a victim again and asked them to take down the video clip. Right. So and and really, if you and we'll 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 include a clip here of the I'm sure I can find it. Um she I mean, <laughs> it would be anything but I mean, she may have felt we're not in charge of how people feel about things. She may have felt, you know, re-victimized by this, but boy, was the, it was a, I mean, it was like a, it was like a glamour piece for her really. Um, but she's just been um, sort of problematic. So this is the the first little piece we're going to talk about. So last week she, uh, she wrote a piece and actually you should, you should talk about, you should explain this because you've been covering this more than I have sure. about what happened. Yeah, go for it. Sure. So last week she wrote a piece for the Washington Post finally about the Depp Heard trial. Now, if you've been covering tech, if that's your beat, um, I'm just going to say last week was actually a little late because yeah. this story has been going on for six weeks and the tech angle on this was fascinating from kind of the second week. Like yeah. she really, I mean, Taylor Lorenz, I have read pieces of hers that have taught me about TikTok subcultures and various kinds of like influencers I didn't know about. Well, the TikTok story here was massive. And for whatever reason, she doesn't write about it until last week. And, you know, the idea is a 
pretty solid one. It's basically that online media has uh, won the Depp Heard trial. Okay, we and we saw very similar headlines and different stories. This is not a particularly good story either. I mean, I again, I've read stories of Taylor Lorenz's when when she first came to my attention. I want to say it was about something during the pandemic and there were these influencers that were like partying on the Hamptons or something like that. I I really can't remember the details, but it was an interesting story. I kind of thought, oh, that was really cool. I, I I followed her on Twitter. I mean, I didn't, I just sort of thought this was an interesting person that had interesting perspectives on a world that is relatively, uh, unknown to me. I'm pretty firmly Gen X. And so anyway, but this is not a good story. It's not a good story for a lot of different reasons. Um, One is that it is weirdly defensive about traditional media's coverage. I'm going to read you a line here. As traditional news outlets prioritized stories such as the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion on abortion, the war in Ukraine, and mass shootings in Buffalo and Texas, it left an opening for online coverage to set the tone with the Depp Heard trial. Okay. Uh, we, okay. So, because foreign correspondents were covering the Ukraine uh, war, (laughs) the war in Ukraine. Apparently this meant that other people in other departments did not have the bandwidth to cover the Depp Heard trial. Well, this is, this is so disingenuous and it's actually being printed in a newspaper where the very op-ed ran and the silence on that issue has been deafening from the halls of the Washington Post. Um, it is truly... So it's very um, defensive. So she's saying like, look, we, you know, we, it's very defensive is what you're saying. It's like, we basically fell down on the job, but I'm going to basically say the reason is because, you know, we were covering the war. We're so well, we noble. were nobly cl- covering the things that yeah. mattered and you guys were covering Which, the crap that didn't. And, and, you know, and, and these bad faith actors leapt into the hole. There are a couple of really good points in here. You know, one of them is that if you are an online influencer, if you're a YouTuber, if you're a podcaster, there is no incentive for being neutral. This is true. And this is a problem. Um, This is also a problem with actual traditional media as well as cable news, as everything. But in other words, if you were you either basically the only revenue stream that was going to work for you really was going to be pro dep. There was just an enormous opportunity there. And so having a neutral setting tended to, to alienate both your view, your viewers or listeners. People really couldn't build their user base. I mean, there are exceptions like somebody like Nick Wallace, who had a very long, you know, career as a BBC journalist behind him and had people supporting him on this. That's, that's going to be your exception. If you're an amateur throwing in for this, then it makes sense for you to be on one side or the other. Most people chose Depp. Okay. This is, this is all true. Um, but where she goes, she, she tries to 
explain how some of these influencers have made major bank. And she references two specific, pretty high profile figures. One is a woman named Alita Mazika, I believe is her last name. She runs a YouTube channel called Legal Bites. She's a, a former former or current lawyer, I don't know. But anyway, she, one of the things she did during the Depp trial was to basically create this this community where they would like all these lawyers would watch it together. And it's a bizarre thing. I watched some of it yesterday. I mean, I, I again, this is not my world. And watching four lawyers uh, watch a trial while hundreds of people scroll and make comments, it's just like, it's sort of like a little bit of a multitasking hell for me. And so it's not my deal. But anyway, uh, she did get a lot of support. The other person is this this interesting anonymous figure called That Umbrella Guy. That Umbrella Guy has done a number of really popular YouTube videos. He became part of the trial, mentioned a few times from the stand, um, because one of the people that went up to testify during rebuttal was this guy from the Hicksville trailer palace that had seen a tweet he'd put online and then responded to it. It didn't happen that way. And that's how the Depp team found him. And so the notion of whether this is a journalist that Adam Waldman, the lawyer for Johnny Depp, has been communicating with, or whether this is a PR plant uh, that is just leaking stuff. I mean, I will say, if you go to the YouTube channel, is is not is not hard to figure out the bias here. The okay. the 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 um the videos always have that that YouTube thing uh, that really kind of makes me mad, but it always gets my attention. So that's take that for what it is. But it'll say like Amber Heard destroyed on the stand. And it's like a picture of her yelling or like Amber Heard betrays one of her friends. And it's like, so it's, all very, it's very drudge report kind of. Oh my God. Totally. Totally. Okay. And you see that on YouTube all the time. And, and that's definitely what he's doing here. Um, but anyway, let me get to the point of this. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Taylor Lorenz, focus, focus. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm teasing you. Go for it. Taylor Lorenz mentions these two people, and and the article says that they w- did not respond to uh, her request for comments. So let's let's just make that very clear to the listener. Okay, in the you know when you're reading an article, and you know the person's talking about yada yada yada, meaning the journalist she's writing the piece, and all of a sudden they'll break sometimes parenthetically or sometimes just in the piece. Like we tried to contact you know uh, legal bites and that umbrella guy, but we we did not receive. They did not respond to us. So when you're a reader, you're like, oh well. They tried and the people did not respond. Now, you don't know what that means. You don't know if the guy was like in the hospital with a broken leg or he was in a coma or if he just chose not to because he didn't want to talk. You don't know. Have All you know by that statement is that the journalist has done her due diligence to try to get a comment from the person that she is writing about, which is, I'm sorry, this is Journalism 101. Like, that is If you write a story, if I'm your editor and you're a baby journalist and you come to me and you write an entire story about Sarah Heppola and I'm like, well, did you try to call Sarah Heppola? And you say, no, I'm like, go try to call Sarah Heppola. 
I mean, this is this is yeah, literally say, journalism 101. I will say in her defense, this is not an entire story about these two people. They were mentioned in no. passing. And it doesn't seem True. obvious to me that she would have had to contact them. It would have been good That's, if she would have contacted them, right. especially because she cites um, how much they earned and seems to have gotten some of that wrong. Right. Well, um, okay. So you can even do that. You can even say, you know what? I'm writing this piece. I don't really feel like I need to. In which case, you do not state in the piece that you tried to contact them and did not get a response, right? So that umbrella guy goes on Twitter as soon as the story comes out. And he says, look, the Washington Post lied. They didn't contact me before including me in this story. And then Taylor Lorenz contacts him and asks of he afterward. And then he shares those messages with timestamps that show you that it happened after. Uh, Alita, 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 Alita also says like, apparently uh, maybe she tried to reach out over, over Instagram, but anyway, that, you know, she wasn't really contacted either. So the first thing that happens is that this is changed without any acknowledgement. They call that what stealth editing. Yeah, I had never heard that phrase, yeah. stealth editing. So let me just also back up a little. So let's say, like for instance, I wrote something the other day, and instead of putting um, that nineteen people rest their souls had died, twenty one people had died in Uvalde. I had, I had nineteen. I had a mistake. I went in and changed it. It was on my blog. It doesn't really call for a correction. But had it been in the Washington Post, you would have run a correction. Um, when you run a correction, you basically say, you know, correction, we got this wrong. This is the right thing. All right. So I'm going to tell you watch. something a little bit squishy happened to journalism and corrections and editor's notes when it went online. Right. Because one of the things that happened was that there was such a push to be fast and first that you would almost inevitably end up with a story. Like at Salon, we would do something called back editing, meaning that it was posted before it was ever even copyread. And so it was inevitably going to have misspellings, things like that. And you weren't going to make editor's note corrections. Not and every I, little time for every no. tiny thing. No, it doesn't matter. It's, no. And but. one of my and as the as an editor there, one of my goals when I would figure out, and I'm just gonna tell you this, one of my goals was to get to the correction that somebody had pointed out to me very, very soon. Sometimes it was the writer itself. Sure. Before anybody else noticed it so that I wouldn't have to addend an editor's note. Right. Because if some of these stories were very long. They were 5,000 words. And once you get a bunch of people coming in and you're, you're going to have an editor's note that's just like if you had to cha- if you had to notate every single little thing. I'll give you an example. I had a piece uh, that I ran two days ago, which I actually haven't put up here for the readers. If they want to see it, I will, or we'll put it in the show notes about what I'm doing here in uh, in San Francisco. And I, I mentioned Diane Feinstein. I, I left out one of the N's in Diane. Someone flagged it and said, Nancy, misspelling. I went in and corrected it. I'm not going to put an editor's note in there that I put a second N in Diane's name. This is not, this is inconsequential. However, Having said that I contacted somebody and then I didn't, mm. and then that got called out, that is grounds 
for a correction. So what? About, okay, what about this is this is do? actually this is stealth editing. This is stealth editing. Right. This is somebody right. trying to cover their track. We don't know who it is. You know, it could have been her. It could have been the editor. It could have been a copy editor. We have no idea. Somebody tries to cover the tracks. And this being a very high profile story at this point, having all the eyes of the Internet on it, you are not going to get away with this. So the Washington Post then edits, uh, you know, offers a correction. The correction's not good enough. They offer a correction to the fact of the stealth editing. They offer another correction about the fact that there was like an in a, in like an incorrect attribution to Depp's lawyer, Adam Waldman. The it's it's a circus. It's a disaster. And by the end of this the editor's note, which is now at the top, is got to be the longest editor's note I've ever <laughs> seen. History. After I was done with it, I was like, well, that was a good story. <laughs> exactly. The editor's note is more exciting than the story because they're, because they tried to, it's like, it's like a kid, right? The kid's like, did you steal the cookie? I didn't steal the cookie. You know, they stole the cookie. So they put like half of the cookie back in the cookie jar and you're like, absolutely, that's half a cookie. And it's like, no, it's the whole cookie. And then they try to smash two more cookies. And it's like, just tell me that you put. So anyway, the Washington Post did this. They did it badly. They did it publicly. And per usual, though, I may be getting this wrong, you would think so. OK, let me back up a second. When this first started happening and we knew that Lorenz had not exactly actually uh, reached out, I was like, OK, so look, I do my own work. I make my own phone calls. I am not a star editor at the Washington Post. Maybe she thought she was on deadline. Maybe the Washington Post has like assistants for her that are like, listen, you know, Jane over here, or you make so make try to make a call, and then Jane did or didn't know how to do it, or they just like maybe there was a miscommunication. It it's does. Possible. She she did say that there was a miscommunication between the editor and her, and that the editor is who had inserted that line. Well, that is very very strange. I I can un, under no circumstances. Can I see as an editor saying like, oh, here's this article that Taylor Lorenz sent in. She doesn't mention the two people that she's talking about. I think I'll just put in a line that says she tried to contact them, but they didn't respond. This is this is nonsensical. Well, this is apparently not he, uh, he asked her, you know, whatever he said, did you did you reach out? And then she says, oh, yeah. And she what said, she means is, hold on, I have to go is, get an orange juice. Like what? <laughs> right. And then what she means is, she mess- she messaged one on Instagram, and she meant to contact the other one and forgot. I don't. I can't create the scenario where this works exactly. But I just wanted to clarify that that is what she said. I have to say, I had this experience happen once, like way back in the day when my life was in the barrel and all the publications in in Portland were writing about me and my husband's business, and I, this article comes out. And it says, we tried to contact Nancy Rommelman and she didn't respond. I'm like, okay. I'm like, hi, hello. I've been a journalist <laughs> for 20 years. I have an email. I have a website. I have a telephone. You could have called any of my husband's businesses. How did you try to reach out? And it turned out like four minutes before she'd gone to publication, she sent me a message on Instagram that I uh, didn't see because we don't follow each other. And no, I was, of course. I reamed her. I'm sorry. I reamed her a new fucking asshole. I'm like, don't you say you tried to contact me. Do you know what I do for a living? And they, they took it out. They had to make a correction. And she's like, oh, well, uh, uh. And I'm like, I understand that times change and I understand that methods change. That's bullshit. So anyway, <sighs> And but, anyway. but th- that's a great story. But by the way, I've also had editors add erroneous things in my pieces. 
And it's shocking to me. I had a very similar, I don't want to get into it because it's too complicated and it caused me grief. But there was a there was an editing miscommunication around a story that I wrote not long ago that caused a lot of grief. And I mm. I I understand now how it happened. Uh, it was about okay. somebody wanting to go on the record or not go on the record. And it just, it, it got, oh, that's, it got that lost. could be super messy. Like you have to be so careful. I had, um, I, I can't get into it. Well, we'll, when we get to the next story, I can allude to it, but I had someone contact me yesterday and you know, we're just, it's just between us. We, we know each other and it's like, I can tell you this, but it's off the record. Like it's off the record. Like that's it. It doesn't like, there's no squishiness about that. I did ask her if there was one person I could share it with who she knows and trusts, and she said yes. But otherwise, it's like, no, you can't. And if you, for some reason, shared that with your editor because he or she needed context and then he or she mis- misunderstood and included it, you're, you're, you're going to get – it's very, very troublesome because who's going to trust you again? Well, and this was a case where the guy had not said off the record, but it was sort of understood that he meant it in a certain context. And this got in the hands of a top editor who added something that was not the context in which he said it. So uh, if people don't know what this is, you sometimes have two editors. You have an editor that works on your story. Then you have a top editor that's usually less familiar with the details. And things get broken along the chain of communication because they're starting to communicate about it. You're getting left out of the conversation because it's too many people, but you're the one that has the information. And sometimes you don't see the, the piece before it ran, which was the case here. Blah, blah, blah. My, that is gonna, a lot of inside baseball. Wait, one more thing, and then we'll get back to the story. I'm going to give our listeners a tip because they may find themselves in this position. If you're talking to a journalist or a writer and you're telling this whole entire story and blah, 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 blah and then two days later, you're like, ah, oh, you know, I didn't really feel like, and you call them and say, okay, by the way, all that's off the record can't it, it's it's not it, it's on the record so you just be careful i mean you can like if you're in the middle of telling me a story and you say oh and then i stole that thing oh oh wait a second i don't want to include that little bit that i stole right. that banana fine i'm going to leave that out but you cannot call me two days later because you had a change of heart because it's already on the record so just letting you know a little caution there um okay so advice. let's so go back that's to basically that that's basically that dust up I mean, you know, there's not much more to say about it, except that, you know, at at the time that this happens, it's like, oh, wow, the Washington Post is really not covering themselves in glory, as one might say. But then came this other... So Scandal. one question, did Lorenz, because Lorenz has a tendency, as the person we're about to talk to does, to paint herself as the victim here. Did she again say she was the victim here? Because if she did, I missed that part. Um, I think so. I, it's, it's, I, I followed so many Twitter scandals yesterday and so many characters and I've, I've gotten it a little bit lost, but, um, it seems like that was the case. But I, I, you know, I think at one point when I went to Twitter yesterday, she said, if you're wondering why the internet is hating me on, on me right now, read this article. And she linked to a story that I opened because I wanted to read it but it was behind a paywall. And by the way, this is a huge part of the legacy media versus YouTube, TikTok drama. You know, when I was talking to James from court, my buddy uh, who became a social media influencer because of his accidental uh, sort of viral picture in the Depp trial, one of the things I asked him was, do you read newspapers? And he was like, oh God, no. And I was like, why? And he was like, well, like half of them are behind a paywall, first of all. 
I can't. That's right. So where are you going to go? You're going to go where it's free. Uh, so speaking of that, you know, a couple of times, uh, my friend, our friend Matt Welch has has linked me a tweet of someone's, including Lorenz's. She blocked me uh, about a year and a half you ago. You mentioned no this the other day. I have no day. idea why. We've never had any, the only only thing I've ever had communication with her is a couple, about a year and a half ago, she posted this thing. It was like someone's like um, engagement uh, lookbook with all these pictures. And it was like so over the top. I mean, she had posted it because it was like so ridiculous. And all I I commented, wow, the divorce book is going to be lit. Like something like that. People liked it, laughed, haha. That was the only com- only time I've ever had any thing to do with her. And she blocked me. So I can't really, I can't see what she's writing about. Can, which can is I ask fine. a question? When yeah. you get blocked, do you get a notification? No, you don't. And I'm going to give, I'm going to give, uh, going to give listeners another tip. So first of all, I block very, very, very few people on social media. I have blocked people that have sent me like something truly disgusting, like what they want to do to my body, like really gross. Like I'm not saying like, oh, I'd like to lick your neck or something what? like I'm talking Whoa. about. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I, but here's the thing. There's a mute button on Twitter and you can hit yeah, it. That's what means- I use. Which means you'll never see their comments again. I have, when I was reporting from Portland, there was one gal, she's sort of like an activist, Antifa journalist in scare quotes. And every single time I posted something, she was on my page posting like a million things, how disgusting I was and the worst person ever that's walked the face of the earth. And I finally was like, I just muted her. She's probably still saying things to me. I don't know anything about it, which is fine. But when you block someone, then they like have this like, aha, and they'll post your little like, so-and-so blocked me. It's just like not worth it. How do you know? How do you know if they've blocked you? Well, I know because uh, someone sent me, for instance, a couple of days ago, a tweet of Lorenz's. And I'm like, I can't see her tweets. When I click it, it says this person's blocked you. Oh, so you go to their page. Yeah. You try to go and click on their page and it says so-and-so has blocked you. See, I just never understood how people understood how they were blocked because I have never had that experience. Well, you may have some people that, I mean, I don't know if there's a place you can go and find out who's blocked you. I have no idea. Probably not. Uh, What are the chances nobody blocked me? No, I'm sure people have. What are the chances everybody loves me, Nancy? Very, very high. Uh, I also you. have to tell you, people are. I had somebody creep onto my page a couple of months ago. I don't know what I was writing about, something at an article. And the, some guy just came on and wrote like a really snarky, sort of juvenile comment. And I, I answered him. I was like, well, in fact, if you want to see the data, here it is. And he blocked me immediately. I was like, wow, that was easy. Like people scare so Dang. easy. They're so, I'm so scary, Sarah Heppler, as you know. It's like you got him to break up with you. You got him to do the dirty work. Yeah. Well, you I didn't have to get your like, fingers dirty with the block no, button. That's right. Why should I do that? Okay, let's move on. Yes. Um, so, all right. So a couple of days ago, I guess it's like three days ago now. It seems like 30 years ago. Um, a, uh, a journalist named... Uh, Dave Weigel. He's also employed at the Washington Post. He's been a lot of other places. He's been around. A he long was time. at Reason for a while. Does Matt know him? Do you know a him? A long time ago. I don't know him. I mean, we follow each other, but yes, Matt knows him. Yes. And, and they, he was at Reason a long, long time ago. Very successful. He's at Washington Post now. And I don't know who originally tweeted this, but someone tweeted something that I'm, I might be hacked. Go ahead. You want to read it? You can read I it. I know this because I went down the rabbit hole that was okay. the source of this. And I promised I won't be too long on this. Um, but I do know what's going on here. This is a 
tweet from a YouTube personality named Cam Harless, who calls himself a well-respected shit poster. And the tweet says, every girl is bi. You just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual. So, which is, I mean, what do you think I of that joke? I, I think it's kind of stupid, a little bit funny. Like, I, like yeah, I literally, it's like, it's like I, a quarter funny. It's, it's like, just like, also, yeah, it's like exactly. funny in 2010. It's funny. Like, it's funny if you're it's like, it's funny in like, yeah. And you don't really know what bipolar is. You'd be like, wait, what? You know, it's just, it's whatever. It's almost like a Beavis and Buttheady kind of, I, I don't personally take offense to it, but you know, it's, it's still harder to offend me. Um, you know, only, what do I only cry about, Sarah? I only cry about journalism, right? So, um, um, it was, so I guess Dave Weigel saw it, thought it was Haha, funny enough or whatever, retweeted it. That's all. Like, you know, you retweet a lot of things like that you're not like, this is the hill I'm going to die on, right? You know, especially people that are big on Twitter, like content, 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 right? Anyway, whatever. Well, well, one of his colleagues, a woman named Felicia Sonmez, she is also a journalist at the Washington Post. She saw, okay, so think about this for a second. She sees that he retweets it. So it's not that you've just seen the joke. You're looking at who has retweeted it, which is, you know, the little tiny, little tiny letters on the top retweeted by obviously probably thousands of people, but by Dave Weigel, her colleague. And what does she write? What do you, because you always have this stuff in front of you and I don't. She reposts that and says, I'm not sure I have this one, but it basically says so much fun to work at, at a, a place. publication that allows this. Right. Allows this sort of allows us. Okay. So, all right. So here I'm going to just step back for a second as Nancy Rommelman and say, if I'm at a magazine or let's say, let's say it is, let's say it's you or it's, it's, no, it's got to be a guy because there's a, there's a guy component here, right? Let's say a friend of mine who's a guy reposts something I think's in bad taste or that I find offensive or I find frightening. This is what I would do. I would contact him. Uh, either by, you know, DM or I'd text him or I'd call him and say, dude, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Like, I I find this to be pretty gross. And I'd like to tell you why. And you're buying the fucking drinks. All right. Absolutely. And I am sure that this person, because he's a friend of mine, would be like, oh, my God. First of all, I would either be like, he would say, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. And I'm buying you three drinks. And I love you. And I love you. Okay. Number one. Or he would say, oh, come on, Nancy, grow a, grow, you know, grow a thicker skin. This is funny. It's just stupid. It's a stupid joke. Forget it. And then, you know what I do? I'd be like, yeah, you know, I got 16 stories to write. I got important things that I got to do here. Maybe I'm writing about the war in Ukraine. Maybe I'm writing about, you know, something that a dead kid. Like I have work that's important. I am a journalist. I am a, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to cry yet, but it's coming. I'm a journalist. I have a responsibility to the public. My responsibility is to walk into stories and to tell them in ways that the public can understand. However, this is not what happens in this situation. What happens is that Felicia Sonmez says this, and people get, first of all, Dave Weigel deletes the tweet. Right. Gets rid of it. But apologizes. This is not he apologizes. He deletes the tweet. This is not enough for Felicia. She doubles down 
All right. Well, right. and there's there's a a, a new yep. character yes, is going to enter our yes, drama, and I is. do have the receipts on this. Okay, go so for it. you think it's over, but it's not because a national reporter named Jose Del Real at the Washington Post is at the Washington Post and says he's the only Mexican American reporter on the national desk. He tweets, Felicia, we all mess up from time to time. Engaging in repeated and targeted public harassment is neither a good look, nor is it particularly effective. I disagree with that part, but it turns the language of inclusivity into clout chasing and bullying. Okay. Um, she responds. Because everyone's got their popcorn now. I mean, at this point, everybody's watching them. This is one of the things is that like Twitter is just a bunch of bored people looking for a place to put their anger, outrage and get their dopamine. Right. And so this is like there is shit going down at The Washington Post. Fight, 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 fight. And so Felicia texts back, tweets back. When women stand up for themselves, some people respond with even more vitriol. Last night, a Post colleague publicly attacked me for calling out another colleague's sexist tweet. He first hid any replies objecting to his attacks and now seems to have deleted his account. So now he comes back the next day with a six-part tweet. It's, it's a bit of an apology, but it's not a groveling apology. Basically, he's saying, I really feel like it's my responsibility, as I'm saying, as a journalist, as a human, as a grown-up, to keep the temperature down, to insert more kindness in the com- into the conversation. And, and this is I Jose Del Real, by the way. This is yes. Jose Del. This is yes. not Dave Weigel. This is now no. between Jose and Felicia. Okay. And he's like, I will, I will be the person that will do this. I will, I will start to cool down the situation and insert some calm here. Well, this does absolutely nothing because what's happened already now? What's happened is that when Felicia and we're going to get to why this actually has some gravitas, okay? When she decided to take her offense public, she rallied the troops, okay? This is now at least the fourth time, and I think fifth time, Felicia Sonmez has taken her gripes, her upsetness, her being offended public and insisted that other people make it their business. And when I say that, it's way, God, it's way too long a story. Okay. Hi, listeners. Nancy. Hey, Sarah. Sarah. Are you going to start talking about the story that your story, Shiv in the Hand of Kindness? I am. But first, I want to ask you a question. What's the name of this show? (laughs) What the fuck do I know? What's the name of our show? Oh, I'm sorry. It's called Smoke Em If You Got Em. <laughs> I was like, what happened, Sarah, since we've spoken? We've wiped your memory clean. Uh, yeah, I was about to get into that, but go for it. Please, please give us some more backstory, whatever you need to talk about. Well, I just have a lot of thoughts about your story because I really, really liked it and I want to talk about it a fair bit. So before we got into that story, I wanted to close the loop a little bit on this on this one episode now, because what she does is that she files a complaint and uh, Sally Busby, who's the first female editor of The Washington Posts, uh, she sends out something that basically is like everybody needs to everybody needs to play nice on Twitter. 
and it doesn't um, work. It doesn't. And work it doesn't at work at all. At all. At all. And um, then meanwhile, somebody else uh, who's on the video team at Washington Post, her name is Brianna Muir. Uh, she replies all to this email and says, you know, thank you, Felicia Sonmans, for speaking up. And she points out that I think like the head of the videography department accidentally called her in a tweet, Brianna Taylor. This is, this is, this is, you know, when the whole Brianna Taylor stuff was going on. Okay. So, so hold on. Okay. So, you know, they talk about, um, what do they call it about? Like, archaeology insults or what what is that called when you're you're looking for grievances you're going and digging and digging and digging in people's timelines to find things to make you mad right which is just oh archaeological grievances yeah it's yeah it's it's so um i mean this is again what i started out saying why is this important to the public well why because the person that you expect to be bringing your your news in fact is not that's not what they're concentrating on they are literally going through 16 years of people's tweets to find out things that might piss them off and they can use as ammunition when this thing happened with brianna muir a couple of year or so ago and she was accidentally identified as brianna taylor because you know what People make mistakes. I went to the same school for 12 years. And when I graduated, they misspelled my name on my diploma. Okay. I thought it was funny, but no. When this thing would happen with Brianna Muir, Felicia Sonmas grabbed it and said, isn't it, you know, like interesting that we should have more respect for our colleagues and she's a friend and this and that. And the guy like apologized. And it's like, people make mistakes. But what does Brianna do? She jumps back on the bandwagon yesterday in order to continue to shine light on the fact that a colleague of hers made a mistake. What the fuck, people? Why in the world? Okay, okay. We're all on a we're all on a soccer team, right? We're on a soccer team. Are we all trying to like score a goal, or should I basically be running across the field and tripping you because then I'm going to look like I am actually the person more able to score goals and more entitled to score goals? I mean, this is insane, and this is why it should matter to people. I'm sorry. The Washington Post is going to put itself out of business if what they do, if what they pay attention to and continue to say, absolutely, you know what? You know what we're going to do today? You know what the editor-in-chief is going to do today and this week and for the next 85 fucking years? We are going to make sure that Felicia Sonmez is super comfortable. By the way, one of the reasons why this is an issue is because she took the Washington Post to court two years ago. All right? Yeah, she took absolutely. Them, all right. She took them. We'll get into my story in a second. We, she took yeah. them to Okay. Wait, 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 before before you tell us, because yes. I feel like that ah. needs to go in a in a in a sidebar about Felicia Sonmez. So I think I we're going to get into that. I just want to say, it, Oliver Darcy at CNN writes a whole piece about this. We'll link it in the comments. One of the things that he that he the bombs that he drops is that because of this, Dave Weigel has been suspended for a month without pay. That's right. Dave Weigel has been suspended for a month without pay for retweeting for a retweeting medi- a mediocre joke. A Beavis and Butthead joke. Okay, so the Washington Post, the Washington Post, because they are so afraid of looking like they don't support women or don't support victims, will will suspend a journalist without pay. Okay, so this is what they're calling being supportive. And this is what I wrote to a friend this morning who wrote to me, institutions have to be able to react swiftly to things like this. I personally think I woke up this morning. I woke up this morning with more sympathy for Sonmez than I may have ever had. And I'll tell you why. Last night, I guess, before I was going to bed, I saw 
a tweet that someone had posted of hers. It's like an eight-part tweet in which she has taken the the nasty things that people have said to her, that have said directly to her and put on Twitter. She's taken them. She has nicely cropped, the, cropped them. She has curated them, and she has put them in an eight-part tweet, okay, yeah. showing that these are all the people that are being bad to her. Okay, I want yeah. – this is someone that is troubled, yeah. Okay, this is a troubled person who is That's taking, right. who is collecting mean things, like big, big, giant blocks of meanness and piling them on top of herself. This is, this is, this is, I mean, this is frightening. It makes me feel like I can't breathe. It makes me feel like I'm being mm-hmm. buried alive. She is burying herself alive under this. And, and, and I'm sorry, but the Washington Post has a responsibility to not to not ratify that the way that she's burying herself alive. She's taking this public, she's keeping it alive. And instead of saying, Felicia, Felicia, like, let's like, let's everybody like chill out here. No, instead they say, yes, well, obviously she's right. And we're going to suspend this person. And this is what I wrote to my friend this morning when, when he said, you know, they need to be able to recognize this and offer help to this person. I wrote, this is the reason the Washington Post is failing. They're being a terrible custodian, a bad parent. They are preoccupied with what the neighbors or the deacon thinks or some past failing or unloved dream of their own to keep their eye on the ball, to understand what's really important here and what caretaking actually is. They may think that they are taking care of Felicia Sonmez by mowing every single other person, by burning every fucking other person in this institution down, by making them all afraid, by making them everybody now be completely paranoid about what's going to happen. They may think that's caretaking. That is not caretaking. That is not being the parent here. That is not. And all right. So, all right. So, Mez, okay. and <clears throat> I, well, go ahead. Sorry. I'm, I'm going to have a- I, If it's okay with you, I'd like to introduce your story. And then I want you to tell about it. Sure. Sure. And the reason I want to do that is because you sent out this story that you wrote a couple years ago through our Substack as a sort of essay- and it's called Shiv in the Hand of Kindness. And the main art is Kobe Bryant. And if you are like me and don't give a shit about basketball and think to yourself, this story has nothing to do with me and I shouldn't read it, you are wrong. Um, this is a beautiful story. Uh, the moral complexity and generosity of this story is exactly the kind of thing I strive for in my own writing. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to me because I, I, as, as I was reading this, uh, again this morning, I was struck that this is not the kind of story I read anymore. And I had almost emotional response to that because the extent to which you are looking at various sides, aiming for both rigor and compassion is something that I really admire in you and I really miss in the culture. And so I want to encourage people to read it. I might insist on quoting you back to yourself a couple times as we go through this. Um, But one of the things early on that you say in the piece that I really loved, you have a line that appropriating pain has become all the rage and you follow that up 
with the sort of fascinating idea that sympathizing with pain often coincides with the lust to create it. That's great shit. Thanks, Sarah. So how did this article come about? Um, I was actually in, in, a, in a lingerie store called Agent Provocateur. I know uh, that place. Okay. I was in, in Soho and for reasons unknown, I was trying on this like crazy little like white bustier bodysuit thing. And as I've I'm been doing, there, I've been yeah. in that place. So I need help closing it because it's got all these buckles and ties and everything. And as the young sales girl is buckling me up, someone else behind the counter goes, oh my God, Kobe Bryant just died in a helicopter accident. And like literally the entire, mm. everything stopped. And we're like, what? When I'm standing, they're like half dressed. Everybody's, it's only like the sales girls and me practically in the store. And we're talking and we're listening to the, to the details. And it's so traumatic I mean, his, the helicopter has gone down like, and his daughter is there and seven, I think seven or nine other people are dead. It's just, it's horrific. And I get back home and I, I open up Twitter and what is on there, but Felicia Sonmez of the Washington Post saying, I think it's important to remember people in their entirety Pointing totality, yeah. Totality, and linking an article that ran was it in Jezebel? I can't no, remember. It's the Daily Beast. The Daily Beast a couple of years earlier about how Kobe Bryant had been accused of rape uh, several years before. Um, it he had not been convicted of it. Uh, I I don't know the details of the case. I know he gave his wife at the time his a big honking diamond ring. And, um, it was, I guess, I don't know if it was dismissed or settled and he apologized. It was was dismissed and I don't know why. And I wish I knew more about this story, but. Well, it, the the story is, we're going to get a little off the rails here. The story is he was playing, I think it was, I'm going to get all the facts wrong. I'm sorry. You're the one that's good at facts. I think it might've been in Denver. They were playing a game. He was back in his hotel room. One of the young gals that worked there, I do not know the circumstances of how she wound up in his room, if she went voluntarily, if he coerced her and said, I need more ice, I don't know. But the story as it went was he basically threw himself at her, got her up against a door. I don't know what actually transpired in terms of the sex of it, but later on, she accused him of sexual assault. So, and you know, it is so I understand especially knowing your attachment to basketball and a figure like Kobe Bryant why this is so upsetting. But I do want to mention that this was kind of a standard procedure, operating procedure in certain circles, feminist circles after David Bowie died. After certain Chuck Berry died. After a lot of these figures would die, there would be this person that would pop up and say but what about the thing with this and that and the other thing? So right. it, it was something that was going right. on. Right. She's not the only person and, that did this this kind of thing. And also, we were not, you know, when when uh, when Louis C.K., you know, got in a world of trouble, he admitted what he did and the women, you know, corroborated it or they started it off. And, you know, we kind of know what happened. We don't know what happened in the room with Kobe Bryant. I, d- is it the case that, you know, basketball players and other celebrities are on the road and sometimes they're having sex with people on the road? Uh, yeah, I, I've heard about this happening. Um, in any case, Felicia Sonmez tweets this. And and I'm, I'm sorry to kind of get dramatic here, but she literally tweets it while the helicopter is still on fire. Okay, like this is happening in real time. And people are understandably 
somewhat upset by this. I mean, Kobe Bryant is a world-famous figure. He's also beloved. I don't know what happened in terms of the sexual assault. Yes, it had happened. It had been a number of years before. I'm not exonerating it or excusing it because I don't know what happened. But the fact of the matter is he and his daughter are burning to death in a helicopter. And Felicia Sonmez decides that now is the time to state this. Well, the reaction she got was not good, right? And uh, she then goes on and says, well, that was interesting to have 10,000 people sending me death threats. And she makes kind of a big to-do out of it. Uh, she wants to go home. The Washington Post, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I guess they didn't well, get her a bodyguard fast enough for her taste. N- no, it, it, what happens is that they put her on suspension, which I found very surprising. And according to the, their story, it's because... She posted a screenshot that revealed readers' personal information, yes. and it was also decided that the, that she was sort of tweeting out of her lane. This was not her, her, and and all the coverage seems to focus on the second part of it that she was not tweeting in her subject matter. When this issue of the screenshot revealing readers' personal information seems like such the larger, uh, I think that actually was so. So she was she was told to take down the. T- tweet about Kobe Bryant. Okay. She was told, I don't know if by Marty Barron, who was the editor chief at the time, she was told to take it down. I not, I don't know. I don't remember my own reporting if she took it down or not, but she did tweet people's personal information. Right. And so they suspended her for one day and she went home and she complained. And then other people, like 10,000 people online that yes, people were attacking her, but she also had, of course, the other side that was saying, I can't believe you're doing to this. I can't believe you're doing this to a victim of sexual assault because Felicia Sonmez has made sure that her identity as a sexual assault victim is part of the record and has complained about it that the Washington Post would not allow her to report on certain subjects, including the Kavanaugh trial. She covers Washington, D.C. government because she said they were not retaliating against her, but they would not let her report on sexual assault because she was a victim of sexual assault. Am I Tell getting this right? Tell us about that. Yeah, you're okay. right. Yeah. Tell All right. us about so that. Uh, how did she become a victim? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Assault. And this is the story covers this. All right. So it was back in Beijing. Uh, there, the LA Times had a. God, I'm going to forget all of my reporting. I believe it was the LA Times had a bureau chief there named Jonathan Kamen. Apparently, there was like you know, hey, it's a journalistic community back there in, in Beijing. They're young. They're you know, they're partying. They're doing things. And Felicia Sonmez is there. She is not at the time employed anywhere. I don't think. I think she was on some sort of grant. But she's hanging out with the journalist because she's a journalist. Now these are not people that are twenty years old. They're probably like late twenties, early thirties. They are at a party, and there's a lot of drinking that goes on. And I guess Jonathan Kamen and Felicia Sonmez know each other. She has already, we had to establish this. She's already been to his apartment one time before, not not sexually or whatever. They get drunk. They decide to go back to his place and fool around. She has a moped and he gets on the back of her moped and she drives them to his apartment. While they are driving on the, on the moped, they're hammered apparently, he reaches under her skirt and touches her cooch. I guess she kind of doesn't like that. In any case, 
they she's get gotta to focus the on the road though she can't say focus on the road. It. take your hand off my cooch um I, they I get like to the apartment either. she's got to apparently like maneuver the moped over some like concrete things they get there they park they go up six flights of stairs to his flat i think it was six mm-hmm. they have sex they go to sleep they get up in the morning she gives him a blowjob and she leaves. It's so bizarre, the details that we know well, about people's weird, a, drunken hookup lives. No, I know. This is all germane. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, it is such a weird anti-pornography. All right. It's like so, pornography's shadow side. Anyway, I just want to say one thing, which is this whole story takes place in September 2017, just to give people right. a little sense of where right. it is. That is a couple weeks before the Harvey Weinstein story right. is going to break oh, in but October. Wait a second. But no, hold on a second. Wasn't it 2016? She doesn't make the complaint until 2017. But I think I think that the hookup was in 2016. We'll, we'll look that up. It's in the story. Okay. In any case... The fact of the matter is Jonathan Kamen has a girlfriend, okay? He has a girlfriend in the States, and he's not happy that he did this. And I don't know if he's fooling around with other people. I don't know. But in any case, he and Felicia do not continue a relationship. Okay. Meanwhile, Jonathan Kamen, by the way, he has a book deal to write a book. He's the bureau chief in Beijing. He's, you know, a successful guy at the LA Times. All right. The Harvey Weinstein story hits in 2017. A woman... I don't remember her name. It's in my article. Who Jonathan Kamen had way earlier had some sort of uh, hookup with. Writes a piece that she puts on Medium saying, I had a messy hookup. It was icky with Jonathan Kamen. I didn't like it. Basically, icky sex. And and I felt that he, you know, maybe was too forward with me. Whatever the, it, say, it states. It's linked in my piece. And, like, he's like, what? what? This is, like, coming out of nowhere. But... You have to remember, it's now 2017. The Weinstein story is out. Me Too is starting to roll. And this gal wants to publish an essay, which is her right. She can publish the essay. He gets in touch yeah, with this her. Is like, this is like a month and a half after Weinstein is broken. So there's like a whole fever in the culture. Fever. Me Too, Me Too, Me Too. And people, look, people can write what they want. People can disagree about what happened. So he contacts the woman and is like, oh my God, like, I'm what? Like, I'm so sorry. And this and that, whatever. I don't, I don't remember. I'm sorry. You got to read my piece. I don't remember what transpires. Oh, what happens? Is it a day after, after that piece runs by this other woman? Felicia Sonmez writes a letter. She turns it into the head of the press club. I think it's called in Beijing where Jonathan came mm-hmm. is the president and says, so last year I, had a hookup with with Jonathan Kamen. And I wish I had been sober enough to remember whether he raped me or not. I'm going to read you the exact quote. And by the way, Thanks. it is 2017. Um, it's September 2017, which makes it about five, four, no, a couple weeks before the Harvey Weinstein case breaks. Um, the Then in, it's not until 2018 that right. she makes the complaint. Right. This is what she says. This is Felicia Sonmez. Many parts of the night remain hazy. I'm devastated by the fact that I was not more sober so that I could say with absolute certainty whether what happened that night was rape. So I I have so many reactions to this statement, and I know this is just not the point, and I might get like dinged for it. Like, is anybody going to bring up the, the fact that she drove a moped while she was hammered? Is there any like... Does anybody care well, about that? Is that just not 
Nobody cares. Well, no, because, like, because she's nearly she in a blackout state. She's nearly in a blackout state and she was driving a moped. Or maybe she's not. That's see, that's you're thinking that obviously you're, you know, you have familiarity with this. Uh, I maybe I think she was drunk. I mean, that that they all admitted that they were drunk. But I don't know that it's the case that she actually doesn't remember whether she was sober enough to remember. I, I don't know that that's true. But that's a this is a wild thing to say. Uh, you I know, mean, it's almost you, like can I just say something that I I might regret it later, but it's like this idea that like I'm devastated that I can't remember enough so that I can say with certainty whether what happened that night was rape. It's like there is like it's like she wants to have been raped. Well, yes, because this is I mean, sorry, I, I I can't I can't say that that's exactly what she wants. But my my thing that kind of trips trips the whole story up for me is, yes, you could be super drunk the night before you go to sleep. You get up in the morning and you give a guy a blowjob. You are now you're not still going to be that drunk. I'm sorry, you're not. I mean, you and you, why would you do that if you are now feeling the possibility that he has? I mean, you could say like, oh, I was so terrorized. I felt like I needed to no, give him a blowjob. Like, what? I, I, I don't know. I have a lot of sympathy with this sort of like weird ambivalence around like, like, I didn't even really want to do it, but I kind of wanted to get out of the thing or I felt guilty well, or I felt okay. like I, I, I have so much sympathy yes. for that. And and I just I, I want to come feeling guilty about what I just said, like that it sounded like she was wanting to be raped. And I think what I want what I want to clarify is that there is almost a search for pain in oh, this, these stories and they happen again and again, which is that like, I don't remember anything bad happening to me, but I just wish to God I could remember it so that I could claim that something terrible happened to me. So what, That's what I hear. And I find it, I find it strange. So what if, I mean, I wrote this piece, I'll, I'll link about when, uh, when Andrew Cuomo wrote this, he put the rape loophole law in New York state saying for exactly like a Sonmez, like could be a year later, whatever. I don't remember what happened, but I think it was rape. You're allowed to bring that charge. And I'm like, well, what if the guy also says, I don't remember what happened either. Like, how do you, how do you make this stick in any case? Sonmez writes this letter. It starts a big bit of a kerfuffle. They start asking him. It gets a little bigger. She doubles down. It gets bigger. It gets back to the LA Times. She doubles down on it again. Let's just cut to the chase, and the details are in my piece. He loses his job. He loses his book deal. He is utterly unemployable, and he has to go home and live with his parents. Okay? Now, does she, what happens to Sonmez? She's celebrated. She is celebrated as a person who is standing up for, for women. She is celebrated as someone who is taking her victimhood and is bravely bringing it out into the open in order to make things better for women so women will be believed. I find her to be, I find her to be an extremely troublesome hero. Um, and I think that she's, she's proved that again and again, including insisting not just in this past thing with Dave Weigel, not just with her friend, Brianna Muir, not just with, um, God, there was another one where she painted herself as the victim, but she also took the Washington Post to court 
and said, you know, they have not been supportive enough of me when I was in this, these, you know, terrible straits. And as a victim of sexual assault, every single thing, and you guys can go on and look at this if you want to fact check this, Felicia Sonmez's identity, the reason why she has standing to continually press these issues and get people on her side, including the Washington Post Guild, the newspaper guild, where they all signed a letter of support for her after the Kobe Bryant thing, is because she is a victim of sexual assault who is being re-victimized every time people, you know, get angry with her or get mad that she tweeted about something about Kobe Bryant. Well, okay, but is she a victim of sexual assault? I, you know, that to me... I, I have serious questions about it. I'm not the only one. Emily Yaffe wrote an incredible piece for Reason a number of years ago called I'm Radioactive about the Cayman story. I'll, other people, I'm going to read you a quote right now. I'll read you a quote right now from one of our favorite writers who we've talked about a lot, Caitlin Flanagan, who, again, this was uh, not too long ago when, again, um, Felicia was complaining about the fact that people don't go to bat for her and what a terrible guy Cayman was. Felicia, Caitlin Flanagan tweeted, Felicia, the person you're really angry at lost his job and his book contract. He's had suicidal episodes and no health insurance. He feels hopeless and he's living with his parents. What more do you want from him? You won. It's never enough. Felicia Sonmez, in my estimation, besides waking up with some sympathy for this woman this morning that she's like heaving these gigantic blocks on herself, she's trying to fill some emptiness in herself that's unfillable. And she's trying to fill it up, it seems to me, by publicly humiliating and destroying other people. And I, 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 I could be a, a terrible person and say she's totally cognizant and she's getting some joy out of this, by, by publicly humiliating other people, we live in an era where this is what we do now. We take something that we don't like and we press a button and we instantly immolate them. It's sort of like it's sort of like a crash diet instead of actually like doing the work. It's like I don't have to do the work. I'll just press this button and ten thousand people are going to say, "Oh, they're all for me." But I, I, I just feel like she's she's trying to fill up whatever it is in herself that hurts with the pain of others. And it's terrible. It's terrible for everybody. And I got to tell you, man, the Washington Post cannot say yes. That's the way we will make the world better. We will take somebody's terrible, terrible pain that the only way they know how to fix it is by destroying other people publicly. And we will say yes. We stand behind that, and that's the way we think journalism, and that's the way we think the world should run. And that is why I am saying it is important to the reader, because that is not the way we that is not the way we want to operate. We want to operate by loving people and make and saying to to err is human, to forgive is divine. Somebody spelled my name wrong. Okay, whatever. You offended me. Let's go get a drink. Let's make the world move faster and with more care. Let's be caretakers for each other. And when yeah. when people do these kinds of things and and seem to delight in in destroying other people for what they say is moving the culture forward, which is for making things better for women. How have we made things better for women, Sarah? How? I don't know. I think about that all the time. There, there's, there's ways in which 
we have opened up space for women to talk about sexual dynamics that were more complicated than previous generations might have imagined. I would place them not under the umbrella of rape and assault. I would place them under the umbrella of things like coercion or complicity on Mm -hmm. either part that women are socialized to be so kind and nice and not hurt feelings. And men are socialized in some ways to be sexual opportunists. And I think physically there's a, there's something to that too. There's a physical component to that, that I'm not, I'm not, you know, smart enough to understand, but you know, there is a, sorry, this is going to be so crude, but a friend of mine said, you know, Nancy, and he didn't mean this in a way that please, he didn't mean this in a way like he was going to do it. He's like, you got to just understand men want to put their dicks in women. Like that's what they want to do. And it's not like they're going to operate. Like they have lives, they have jobs, they do things, but there is like, Mm -hmm. there's sort of like this, this, physical desire, which I'm mean, like, I, I kind of like, like it myself. But the thing is like, you know, women are, are not, I don't know. I don't know. It, there's just different drives. Let's put it that way. God, I'm going to regret having said that. I know that, but anyway. Well, this is going to be our regret episode because Man. I already regret my, my <laughs> comment earlier. And I'm sort of like, oh my God, I've been living this like thing in my head where I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get canceled for that. And what's going to happen. And, the, 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 and you know, it's just like, um, but I want to go back to what I think this movement has done, which is to, in many ways, disrupt an idea of sort of happy hedonism that was going on at the college level and in pop culture in general, which is that we were in this sort of post-feminist era where women were having casual sex and it was awesome and everybody was happy. And, you know, what you're seeing in a lot of these stories was that, in fact, it was like a lot of it was messed up and there was a lot of unequal dynamics and there were hidden agendas and a lot of things that I think because people lack language or because they want maximum thrust, they go towards the language of assault and rape. But I think what we needed was more, you know, kind of softer terms of, of difficulty and whether there's something between something between regret and assault, you know? And so anyway, I, I do think it's introduced that. I think that there have been, I've seen, my gosh, the way that men talk about women has really changed. And like, some of it is annoying in the sense that like, there's a little too much caution, you know, tape, caution tape. But some of it is much better. I mean, there really was a time, you don't have to go back that far if you listen to radio or movies or stuff like that. And the way that guys would just talk about women in this really belittling way. They don't feel like they can do that anymore. And they may feel a little bit silenced because of it. Fair enough. But like some of it's been a good correction. Sure. I I would agree with that. I mean, I remember even being in college and just like things are like really crude. And I, and I think it's really interesting what you said just now about sort of like the happy hedonism. I definitely Mm -hmm. think like when we were coming up, there was more 
Like, you're like, did you really want to have sex? No, but you did it. But I'm sure, I'm sure that still happens now. I guess what's happened now is that there's been a, there's been a movement to say, well, it's not just regret sex or icky sex, which, you know, I'm sure most people listening here have had. I have. Um, It's, um, it's, you've been victimized. And it's like, well, Okay. And maybe that's true, but also you also have to take, and I'm not talking about a terrible, you know, assault. I'm just talking about like a hookup that kind of is gross. Like you're kind of wishing to do it. You have to be responsible for that. Whether you're, you're, you're a guy or gal. I, 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 in the piece I'm going to link here that I wrote about, um, about the, um, rape loophole, I quoted, uh, um, uh, Megan Daum who had written a really good piece in her book asking like, um, asking if if guys also regretted sex like you know you always hear like it's Mm. it's it's women and i did a little test and i put it in my piece i i i had five guys in my husband's coffee roastery and i had them sitting there and i was like raise your hand if you've ever had sex when you didn't want to All five of them raised their All hands. All of them. All five. And then a couple of days later, I was in a bar with five different guys, because I tend to hang out with guys. And I said, okay, raise your hand if you've ever had sex, if you didn't want to. Four raised their hands. And one said, is this a rhetorical question? Right. It's like, it's like you know, women are more vocal about saying, I had sex when I didn't want to. Guys just don't say it. They're just like, I did it too. It's like, so well, it doesn't feel like a violation to them. And there is, there is a little bit of a biological component here because men are going inside of you. And so there is, you take them into your body. And so there is like a trespass that is different for the guy. Like they don't often feel violated they feel guilty or like I shouldn't have done that. And I think a lot of times, like when I've talked to guys who regret sex, it's because shit, they were dating somebody else or they, you know, they, they shouldn't have been with that woman or they were trying not to hurt her feelings or whatever. Like the, the ones I've talked to, it's like, I didn't really want to, but she really, really, really wanted to. Or a couple of times it's because they were sleeping and they woke up and she's crawling on top of him. And it's like, Okay. Yeah. You know, there, okay. uh, years ago, after my book came out, I did a series for Jezebel called Jezebel. Ask a Former Drunk. Ask a Former Drunk. Oh, Sarah, what an amazing column. Oh, man. Yeah, it was it was really fun. And Gia Tolentino was my editor on that piece. She was uh, she was working there back then. And uh, we we did about six a series of six questions where I would take. And the best one, I think, was the one about sex. Uh, let's talk about blackouts and sex. And in it, I, with his permission, quoted from a frat guy that had gotten in touch with me and sent me a truly amazing letter after reading my book. Um, and he talked about one day at the frat house where all of them, I can't remember what happened. It was like they saw some guy drag a girl into the room by her hair. And it was like really, really bad. It was like wheels off. And they were like, they all had a sit down and they ended up talking for hours. And one of the things that came out was, you know, no, none of them had assaulted anybody according to their memory, but they had to question, why did they have to be so drunk to have sex? Oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's fascinating. 
and that they were a bunch of guys, kids, getting wasted and high-fiving each other and having sex with women that they barely remembered. And what was the reason for this? And he tells a story about a friend of his that was in a blackout and cheated on his girlfriend and the devastating consequences of this, that this guy felt so, so bad. I'm going to... I'm going to amend what I said about my friend, you know, insisting that men just want to do that to women. I I got to say, and maybe it's just the guys I know, that is not at all the way they've operated in life um, when I've known them as a young adults or adults. It is definitely not a prerogative to bang every girl at all. It's actually kind of, I mean, I don't know, like, you take it kind of seriously. I mean, I, I know when you're a kid, you can't, you don't know, you're trying, you're this, I don't know if I want to do this. But like, when you know what it's actually about, like, you don't just, you don't just do it indiscriminately. Am I, am I you being know, too romantic here? <laughs> no, but I've talked to a couple of men. One, um, I love, you know, uh, one, um, took sex so much more seriously than me um yeah. always found it very sacred and that's exactly the word that I've been told that they yeah. found it very sacred and when I heard that I was like yeah that's actually right and it's too bad that we don't you know sort of understand that at 14 as opposed to 34 this but, was one of the things that I really woke up to in my sobriety because in my drinking years I was on such a quest to salve that part of me that never felt pretty enough and chosen. And so even if you would choose me for the night, that was good enough. And this is so, isn't this so, I'm sorry. I, I don't know why I woke up feeling tenderly for Felicia Sonmez. And I think tenderly might be a little extreme, but one of our readers apparently likes it when we use this word. Um, you're trying to fill up something that can't yeah. be filled up by something that is, it's a vapor. Yeah. You know, or it, it's a dick, it's some booze. It's, it's not, a, it doesn't, doesn't actually work. fill you up. What does mm. is, is sacred and you can't buy it at a store. You can't get it from 10,000 retweets. You can't get it from your union saying they're behind you. It's, yeah. um, it's more ephemeral. And that is something that if we're lucky enough in our lives to get to the point where we understand that, then we can be filled up and then give it away, spill it out you know, spill it out to the rest of the world. Right. And, um, that's what, I mean, that's the only thing I would want to do. Um, and then you, you see people, they're just in so much pain, Sarah. And, and I, and I know that that's not popular. I understand people are super angry today. I'm, I'm angry too. I, what do you mean? I understand like on what people are angry. Like I, you know, I feel bad for Dave Weigel, man. I feel bad for people that like why would are, you not are, feel bad for Dave Weigel I do I mean I'm just saying but then if I'm also saying I also feel bad for the other party for the I party feel bad for both of them why so can I, I not feel bad at both no, sidesism fuck that yeah. <laughs> I'm all sidesism I'm all and that's also that's another thing that's one thing that we always talk about it's like when people are like you have to see both sides I'm like guys it is even more than octagonal it's numerous yeah. it's like it, there's a, no, any number of sides and we all bring our ideas to it but we should maybe bring it with like big baskets of kindness that's my uh that's my mission okay so uh, Sarah um, we have a little bit of time here what else did we want to 
did we want to address here today? I don't know. I just want to talk about sex with you now because it's so interesting to me to think about when I got sober and, and how one of the things that was so clear to me was that like if sex didn't mean anything, like, I'm sorry, if sex was no big deal, why did I have to be so drunk in order to do it? Does that make sense? If if sex was yeah. truly casual and no big deal and nothing mattered, whatever, which was a lot of my language at that time, why did I have to be so drunk? True. It's not and like w- going to the store and buying sushi. Exactly. And so when the alcohol was gone, one of the things I realized was the valence of it, like the ability to let somebody into my body. And and I went through a period of years and I was with somebody during these years and I just really felt like it was it was almost holy to do that. And oh, my it, friends, it, it, I would tell this. It completely this to, is. It yeah. completely is. And then I would tell this to my friends who were kind of like, uh, it's kind of more like, uh, what if you just want sex to be like fast food? And I was like, right, but why would I, why would I? Um, but so anyway, since then that relationship, you know, ended and, and since then I've had a different relationship with sex. And sometimes I do also have fast food and sometimes it is not holy. And one of the things about this post pill world that we have been living in for some 60 years now, uh, 55 years or whatever, is that you can have a casual sex, meaning that you won't have devastating consequences of having a child or the the heavy consequences of having a child. But I really think that a lot of this stuff, a lot of this stuff that's working itself out through the culture is an acknowledgement, either unconscious or conscious or whatever, that um, that sex does matter. That sex has consequences, whether it has consequences like the two that we think of, which are things like pregnancy or STD, that it has its way with us and our minds and our bodies. Um, and sometimes the truth is, is that it's it's tougher for women than for men. I do think even though men are the ones that I know that often have a little bit more not always. I don't know. I'd say about half and half with this, with the taking sex seriously thing. But it doesn't, like, I think women do get attached easier. I know I do. They they do conflate sex and love a little bit faster. I think men are able to compartmentalize sex in a way that women can't. I actually well, think are- one really th- hard thing for men, the men that I've known, is to actually have sex with somebody you're in love with, which is like, I've known a lot of 20 somethings that are just like, they can only have sex with you if they don't have feelings for you, which is a a whole other thing. It becomes a very, very big deal. My analogy, and I may have said this already on the, on the podcast is that if you're, if you're going to a party, you don't care whose house it's in, whatever, it's this guy's house, this mother's apartment. I don't care. You're just going to a party, you're going in and you're leaving. If you're having a party, you're a little more discerning about who comes. Maybe there's a guest list. Maybe you want to, people to leave their boots outside the door. You don't want this crazy person coming in. That's the difference between a man and a woman's body, right? If you're a man, you're going to the party. If you're a woman, you're having the party. It's inside your house. You want to be a little more discerning about it. I'm going to jump tracks, but it's actually tangential to what you just said. So Ezra Klein, who uh, has a big podcast and he's at the Times, right? I like Ezra Klein. Yeah, so do I. 
he had this tweet yesterday that I I was so I've actually been talking about this with someone. I'm going to read you the tweet. Over the past, now I don't know how old Ezra Klein is, 40s, early 40s, probably something like that, mid 40s. Over the past few years, I've been asked one question more than any other. It comes up at speeches, at dinners, in conversation. It's the most popular query when I open my podcast to suggestions time and again. It comes in two forms. The first, should I have kids given the climate crisis that they will face? The second, Mm. should I have kids knowing they will contribute to the climate crisis the world faces? Okay, I have a question for you. Have you been to a dinner party or at a bar or with friends when that topic has come up? Yeah. Interesting. I have not um, ever. I I actually had... um, uh, in any case, I, I had drinks with someone um, recently and he's 35, his wife is 36. And we had just met and I was like, do you have kids? He's like, no, not yet. I was like, oh, and he's like, well, we're thinking about it, but I don't know. And now I feel like it's getting too late. He didn't say anything about the climate crisis, but he did say, he's like, you know, people in my generation, it's sort of like, you just don't want to, you're just not quite ready to like buckle down and do that. He's like, but then I see people in their forties and they still haven't. And it's like, you're just going to go out and do, and you know, you have some familiarity with this in terms of what Klein said. I'm like, is it really that they're concerned about the climate crisis or is it that they just don't feel that they want to tie themselves to children, which is fine. You definitely do not need to have kids, but to, to, for, I mean, the thousands of people he knows, this literally is what they're thinking. I do not want to. And by the way, by the way, you know what? One of those kids you have, Mr. Ezra Klein's friends, might solve the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just saying, you know. Well, a, a few thoughts here. One is that Ezra Klein is 38 years old. Um, okay. He, uh, that, that places him for the last three to five years firmly in the category of people that would be talking about having children because it has become, especially in elite circles, mostly a concern for 35 to 40 year olds, year olds. Um, I agree with you about the idea that this is, I mean, in some ways I think this is, it's like everything else. It's people giving a social justice lens for what they want emotionally and maybe Ah. what they want emotionally is to not be burdened financially or lifestyle wise by children. I mean, I think this is a huge, this is kind of a problem that we have in Western affluent societies, which is the more freedom you give people, the more freedom they want. The more you let them live on their own, the more alone they become. This is a line that leads towards isolation, fewer children, fewer marriages. It's happening all across Western cultures. There's a great book by Eric Kleinensberg or something like that called Going Solo that talks about this. And you know, it can be read as a triumph that people don't have to have children anymore. And it can be read as a tragedy, which is that our biological imperative, if you want to call it that, which is to reproduce, has been somewhat hijacked. And what do we do with those impulses now? 
So I have, in fact, had this conversation with a couple different friends of mine. It doesn't come up a lot. Definitely not in Dallas. It's more of a like New York and Chicago sort of conversation that I have. And the conversation that I had um, with a friend in um, New York was he had just had a child right as Trump was elected. And he just broke down crying when I ran into him. Now, he was probably sleep deprived. He's about the sweetest guy ever. But it was like he was so scared at the world that he had brought a child into. And I'd just never seen anything like that before. That, you know, you're like you run into somebody with a new baby and they're like. They were. He was crying. Uh, you know, I, 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 I mean, I feel for the guy who probably was sleep deprived. And I know that Trump made people crazy. They made the world, crazy. the world is a beautiful place. Donald Trump, even though, of course, he had influence, he was the most powerful man in the world for a while. We make our worlds. We make our worlds. You, the world doesn't come, you know, with 7 billion pieces already assembled, right? You have your little piece, your little family, you build out from there. I remember um, uh, sitting with a friend of mine. He was in his early 30s, as was his girlfriend. And they said, no, maybe mid thirties. And they're like, well, we can't have, we can't have kids because, um, we don't have money. They were each making a quarter of a million dollars a year. Um, right. I, right, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, I saw something yesterday with a little thread that was going around and someone was saying about how, well, you know, when, um, you know, another part of feminism, I can't remember the quote, but, you know, when fathers get to spend more time at home with their kids, you know, this is a good thing. And, you know, maybe we blah, 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 blah. And someone's like, yeah, well, that's just privilege talking. I was like, let me tell you something. I didn't have two freaking cents to rub together, nor did my ex. And, you know, you can have the baby if you want the baby and you make it work. All, almost all of our parents did. I mean, I know we're of a different generation, but the idea that you have to be, have everything all completely set before you bring a child into this world is, is absurd. Because that's the, not the, uh, the other works. thing is that <laughs> younger generations are convinced they know whether or not they want to have children. And one of the things that I've gotten to see now as my friends have become parents is how many of them did not want children, but their hearts were changed by having children in a way that they oh. now find they would it, never it, change it. They would never you, change it, especially the men. You know, I think women, my female friends, are more ambivalent about motherhood than my male friends are about fatherhood. Uh, I'm trying to find the tweet because you know I always I always get my my tweet wrong. But in any case, I'm not going to be able to find it. Well, I I I wanted to have a child when I did. So did my ex. It she opened the world for me. We've already talked about that. Um, people have to make their own decisions, but I think that to always say that it's because of I don't know Donald Trump or climate change. I don't know. It seems to me a little bit of um a little bit of a faint when uh during some of the darkest times of the last few years i watch carl sagan's cosmos mm -hmm. i have it on dvd the original like 19 i don't know if it's from 1980 or what it's around that time there's um carl sagan was uh, a physicist but also a poet he's a profound writer he writes with a, a rhythm that is, I found incredibly soothing. And I would watch the opening sequence to Cosmos over and over again. And it was sort of like a lullaby that would rock me to sleep. He stands on the cliff sides and he says this thing where he says, this is a time of great danger, but the world is young and curious and brave and shows much promise. 
And I always found that to be so dear. And it's always, that's the thing. It's always, until we, if this world gets lit up and just dissolves in a piece of ash, okay. But that is, that's always true. That was true when he did that in the 70s or whenever it was, and it's true today. And I think we should go out and bring that to the world, Sarah Hepla. What do you think? Be young and curious and brave. Yeah. Guys, thanks for joining us. This has been a weirdly emotional episode for me. Um, I have strong feelings. Let's be good to each other. Um, I think that's important. And I think all of you people are really good to each other. And you're certainly good to us. Um, thank you for sending in some of your comments and questions. We had someone that wrote in and said, I'm not sure like how I can like send the things. Just post them in the comments. I think there is actually like a way to email us directly through Substack, but someone smarter than me is going to have to figure that out. And um, um, we'll, we'll get to that episode in a, in a week or so. Well, I regret this already, but I love you so much, Nancy. I'm glad we went down together. I love you too, Sarah Heffala. Okay, everyone. Bye. Oh, be my once in a lifetime. Lying on your chest, in my body dress. I'm a fucking mess, but I. Oh, thanks for the highlight. Baby, it's the best. Pass the test, and yes, now I'm here with you. I would like to think that you would stick around You know that I just died to make you proud The taste, the touch, the way we love It all comes down to make the sound of our love